Good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning in worship, and it's my honor to bring you a message from the Word of God. Uh, when I was studying this passage for this morning, uh, I was reminded of a story of the world-famous magician David Copperfield. And it's not that he... Excuse me. It's not, it's not that he once uh, made the Statue of Liberty disappear. It's actually that over a decade ago, he purchased four tiny islands in the Bahamas. And he paid $50 million. But to him, he felt that that was a bargain. Because he believed that one of the islands contained the Fountain of Youth. And the news reports at the time showed that he was serious about this. He said, I've discovered a true phenomenon. You can take dead leaves and they come into contact with the water, and they become full of life again. He said that bugs that are near death come in contact with the water, and they become alive and fly away again. He said, I found this truly amazing thing. Now, if what he says is true, he's then in possession of something that everyone would want. No matter how much money, power, or influence someone has, they would have a desire for this a body of water that gives new life, a, a fountain that renews those who touch it. But even if this fountain were real, it only would give renewal to the body. This would only be a physical regeneration. And when we look around the world, we see people all the time trying to be young, trying to defy the aging process. There's actually a whole industry of anti-aging products. But the truth is, this is only dealing with the symptom, the, the symptom of physical decay and physical death of our body. This doesn't deal with the real problem. Even a fountain of youth wouldn't get to the real issue, which is sin. Sin causes death to our souls, and a fountain of youth would do nothing for our souls. There's only one way to truly escape death. There's only one way to new spiritual life. And that is the new spiritual life in Christ that is eternal life. The new spiritual life that is given by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. So today we're continuing through the series in the Upper Room Discourse. And we're examining the final words of Jesus to his disciples. And in this message, Jesus tells his disciples much about the new life for those that are his people. He makes it clear that anyone who has a new life in the spirit will live a life that is different from those of the world. And by those of the world, what we really mean is those who are not in Christ. The world are the people who do not have new life in the spirit. They haven't been changed. They haven't been called out. And while the world is constantly dividing us into seemingly unending categories, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, and so on, the Bible puts people into two categories. The Bible repeatedly separates people into two groups, and these two groups oppose one another. There are sheep, and there are goats. There is wheat, and there are tares. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lists the contrast between these two groups. He gives two paths of life that must be chosen. He tells us of two gates and two roads, two trees and two different types of fruit, Two houses built on two different foundations. There are two types of people, and they have two paths in life, two completely different destinies. There are those who have new life in Christ, new life in the Spirit, 
And there are those of the world who do not have this new life. And our passage today will give us three ways that the new life in the Spirit changes us and how it takes us from being different from those that do not possess the Spirit. There are three marks of those who have been changed by the Spirit or have been called out by the Spirit. The first mark is a love for Christ that is shown in obedience. The second is knowing the truth about Christ. And the third is having the peace of Christ in your life. As Kyle mentioned last week, the setting for this whole sermon series is the upper room just before the Passover festival. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is to come. This is the night before he is to be crucified. Jesus has already told them that he will be leaving them and that one of them would betray him. And Peter, one of his closest disciples, would deny him three times. Their hearts are troubled. The man to whom they have dedicated the past three years of their lives to is going to die, and one of them is going to betray him. And although Jesus knows he is about to suffer greatly, although he is troubled in his own spirit, Jesus, the great shepherd, gives them comfort in all of this. And the comfort provided for Jesus is not only for his disciples, it is also for all of his sheep. The comfort of Jesus is the eternal hope of all who believe in him. The disciples have been so caught up in their own difficulties that they have missed what Jesus has been teaching them. He's been revealing himself and his mission to them. And at this Passover meal, he is telling his disciples that he is the ultimate Passover lamb who has come to save his people once and for all. And so in today's passage, Jesus' words begin with, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying that love for him is expressed in obedience. Those who love Jesus will keep his commandments out of love. We know this is significant because he repeats it several times throughout the passage. In verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he actually states the negative in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And this is the first mark of a life changed by the Spirit, or a new life in the Spirit. That is a love that is shown in obedience. Love is something we hear of all the time, right? Not only throughout the Bible, but all throughout the culture. Just try listing all the love songs you've heard in your life, or all the movies about love, or just go on Netflix and search for the word love and see how much pops up. But the culture promotes love as a feeling. Loving someone means they make you feel good. They make you happy, right? But ultimately, because ultimately, Love in the eyes of the world always converges into self-love. When people say they are looking for love, they want someone that makes them feel a certain way. It's actually about themselves. Our sinful natures always pull us to love ourselves. But Jesus is telling us that Christian love is something different. Right? When he was asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, he replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These two commandments of love summarize all the commands in Scripture. But how different is this from the love that the world promotes? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind is not what the world thinks of when they think of love. And that's why this is a mark of someone who has been changed by the Spirit. 
Only those that have been given new life in the Spirit, new life in Christ, will have a love for God. And Jesus is telling us that a love for God is a love for Him. And that love for Jesus is shown in obedience to His commands, obedience to His words. Think about also how different it is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is radically different from what we see in the culture. The the culture promotes love as long as certain conditions are met. Love others as long as it doesn't affect your happiness. But if you're unhappy, even for a minute, get out of there. Love others as long as they agree with you. Love others as long as it's convenient. But Jesus is saying something different than the world. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. The uh, command to love God wholeheartedly is from Deuteronomy. And the command to love your neighbor is from Leviticus. But Jesus tells us that this summarizes the whole law and the prophets. If you think about just the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about loving God. The next six are about loving your neighbor. And this is what we are to do as Christians. If we are called out from the world, then we will live differently than the world. We will love differently than the world. People in the world talk about loving others. But it only takes a few minutes on Twitter or Facebook to see how they really treat each other. And unfortunately, there are those in the church that sometimes act the same. But if we have a new life in Christ, we will love him, which means we will obey him out of love, which means we will treat others with a true, genuine Christian love. We should be reflecting the love of Christ to those who we interact with. If we love Jesus Our thoughts and actions will be drawn to his thoughts and actions, and we will please him. Jesus said in in John chapter 13, after Judas had just left to betray him, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love is the hallmark of a Christian. And if we were to love like Jesus loved, Jesus showed his love by obedience. He modeled loving obedience in his death for us. And he's saying that it's by our obedience that we show our love for him. And by connecting love and obedience, Jesus is really teaching us that the only true kind of obedience is a loving obedience. We are to obey the commands of Jesus freely and with joy. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, the essence of obedience lies in the hearty love which prompts the deed, not in the deed deed itself. So we're not to obey simply for the sake of obedience, nor will we be perfectly obedient. But we are to follow Christ and live out his commands with a love of Christ in our hearts. The desire to be obedient to Christ and the desire to please him is the sign of someone who loves him. And this is the mark of someone who has new life in the spirit. And so that brings us to the second mark, which is knowing the truth about Christ. Jesus says in verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and you will be in you. So there's a lot to unpack in those two sentences. But first, I just want to focus on the fact that Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper. The word translated as helper here literally means one who is called to someone's aid. It's also translated as counselor or advocate. 
The helper he is referring to is the Holy Spirit. He will come to the aid of his disciples, and he comes to our aid. He will be with us forever. The Holy Spirit who changes us. The Holy Spirit who brings about a love of Christ in our hearts. The Holy Spirit who continues to sanctify us and conform us into the image of Christ will be with us forever. Now, Jesus doesn't say that the Father is simply going to send a helper. He says another helper. And there's an interesting distinction here. There's two words in Greek that are translated as another. There's heteros, which means another of a different kind, and alos, which means another of the same kind. So imagine you had a brand new BMW, and you're driving down the road, and it got totaled. And the insurance company tells you they're going to buy you another car. Right? And so they get you another car, but it's not a brand new BMW. It's a Honda Civic, a used Honda Civic, a very, very used Honda Civic. So that would be heteros, another of a different kind. But if they get you a car and it's another brand new BMW, just like the one you had before, that would be alas, another of the same kind. Well, Jesus uses the word alas here. He's saying another of the same kind. So the question is, who is the first helper then? The first helper we see in the scripture is Jesus himself. So what Jesus is actually saying is that although he's about to leave his disciples, he's about to die and then go away, the Father will send another helper, another Jesus, who will continue his aid for his people forever. The Holy Spirit is sent to continue to help and comfort and teach and advocate for those who belong to Christ. This passage gives us a uh, picture of the Trinity in operation here on Trinity Sunday. The Father sending the Spirit to continue the work of the Son for his people. So how does this new life in the Spirit make us different from those in the world? Or how does it call us out to live a different life from those in the world? Well, first, we've already mentioned it gives us a love of Christ, a love of God that is absent from the rest of the world. And so when those in the world speak of love, they, they definitely don't mean love for God, love for Christ, or a love shown in obedience. But also Jesus tells his disciples that this helper is the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or know him. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The, the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to us. He reveals the truth about God to us. He reveals the truth about ourselves to us. He reveals the truth about God's word to us. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates the scriptures and so we can see it. Have you ever talked with someone about the Bible being the word of God who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ? They can't see it. Right? They find a thousand and one reasons why they should deny this. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're blind to the truth. They don't believe that the scripture is the word of God and they, don't, they are blind to the truth about Jesus himself. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. Jesus is the truth, and we see this through the power of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, there's only one sentence, actually, that are not the words of Jesus. It's from Judas, not Iscariot, not the, Ju not the Judas who betrays him, and he asks a good question. Lord, what has come about that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas here is confused. How are you going to reveal yourself only to your people and not to the rest of the world? 
And Jesus answers him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So we know that love for Jesus is shown in the desire and effort to obey him. And those who love Jesus are the ones whom the father loves. And they are the ones whom the father and the son come to. They are, the father and the son come to us through the Holy Spirit. They are the ones that have new life in the spirit. Jesus is telling us why only some people believe in him and why others continue to deny him as Lord. It's obvious to many of us that everything the scriptures teach us about Jesus is true, but the rest of the world thinks we're nuts. That's because all of this is a total package. God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world, and in his time he sends us the Spirit who brings us the truth, the Holy Spirit who gives us a new life which brings us to love Jesus. Our new life in the Spirit brings us to obey Jesus out of love, and this is all a gift of love from the Father. The truth revealed in the Scriptures, the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, all comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Another important aspect we see about the new life in the Spirit is that through the Holy Spirit we are adopted into God's family. Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is speaking of this another Jesus coming to us, the Holy Spirit, another helper. And this spirit of Christ brings us comfort and joy. Now, the doctrine of adoption into God's family is is one of the most comforting and healing biblical doctrines. That we have all sinned against God. We've all rebelled against him. We all deserve death for our sins, but God loves us and brings us into his family. The God, creator, and king of the universe adopts us into his holy and royal family. There's an interesting story from the time of Queen Victoria in England about the middle of the 19th century. It's of a little girl from Nigeria whose village was raided by a rival village. Her parents were killed and she was captured. Then after a time of imprisonment, the British came and freed her. And they they brought her back to England and brought her before the queen. The queen took one look at her and fell in love with this little girl. She immediately adopted her and made her a royal goddaughter. So she went from being an imprisoned five-year-old orphan to Princess Sarah. Now she, she was imprisoned in Africa. She now is living the life of British royalty from a prison cell to the best schools, the best food, attended all the most prestigious events. And if this seems like a dream come true or a storybook tale, how much greater is our adoption into God's family? Because first of all, our starting place is much worse. We, we all begin as sinners before a holy God. We all stand condemned before him. But in his grace and mercy, He sacrificed his son so that we may become sons and daughters, that we can now enter into his presence and be with him for eternity. Our grasp of being adopted as children of God is key to fully appreciating the benefits of salvation. In his classic book, Knowing God, the theologian J.R. Packer sums up the importance of this doctrine. It's a kind of a long quote, but it's worth hearing in full. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. 
In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God's as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He goes on to say, For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So when we think about the fact that the Spirit reveals the truth to us, that new life in the Spirit means having a knowledge of the truth about Christ, the Spirit reveals to us the work of Jesus Christ to make us children of God. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The truth about Christ is that he brings us into the family of God and the Holy Spirit reveals this to us. So new life in the Spirit can be seen in a love for Christ that is shown in obedience and in knowing the truth about Christ. And our third mark of those who have been changed by the Spirit or been called out by the Spirit is having the peace of Christ in your life. In verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that they look forward to a prince of peace brought about, or a period of peace brought about by the coming Messiah. They, they await the prince of peace who will command peace to the nations. And peace in the Old Testament is an important Hebrew word, shalom. It's more than simply a lack of conflict or turmoil. It has a meaning of full peace or completeness, a peaceful well-being. The shalom of God is a full, all-encompassing peace and well-being that comes from God's favor and grace and blessing upon you. And God promised that through his royal Messiah, he would make an everlasting covenant of peace with his people. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one that gives us the covenant of peace and gives peace to his people. Because first of all, he brings us peace with God. We were all enemies of God, every one of us. We all deserve his wrath, his wrath. We all deserve punishment. But because Jesus died as our substitute, he took our wrath. He took the punishment we deserve and made us right with God so that we could stand before him and even be children of God. And because we have been reconciled to God through Christ, we now can receive the peace of God. Right? That is, those who have been restored in their relationship to God through Christ have the peace of God's favor upon them. New life in the Spirit means to have the shalom of God in your life. And that doesn't mean that your life will be perfect, that you won't have pain or turmoil or difficulty, but that you will have the ability to have peace in your turmoil. Because God is with you through all of this. Christ is with you through all of this, through the Spirit who abides in you. God's blessing and grace isn't to remove all the effects of this broken world from us. His blessing and grace comes upon us in this broken world. Our difficulties in this life are the means that God uses to refine us and strengthen us. Right? God uses our pain and sorrow and mourning and suffering to bring about a greater knowledge of him, to bring us closer to him, and to continue to conform us into the image of Christ.
because it's only through turmoil that we fully appreciate peace. It's only through sickness that we fully appreciate health. And it's only in the face of death that we fully appreciate life. The new life in the spirit means we have the peace of God in our lives through the trials of life. He doesn't replace our trials with an easy life, but he uses our struggles to refine us. But even those of us who have new life in the spirit, we do show our love in obedience. We do have a knowledge of the truth about Christ, and we, we have the peace of Christ in our lives. We don't do this perfectly. We often fail to show love because we're disobedient. We often lack the knowledge of the truth or we fail to live it out. And we often don't have the peace of Christ in our hearts when we go through the struggles of life. But we have Christ who has done all of this for us. Jesus showed his perfect love and obedience to the Father, his obedience to the point of death on the cross. Jesus himself is the truth. A knowledge of the truth is a knowledge of Jesus himself. And through his death and resurrection, we have the peace with God and the peace of God in our lives. We have new life in the spirit because he died for us. And he was a sacrifice in our place. In his death, he took the punishment we deserve. And in his resurrection, he gives us eternal life. The eternal life in the spirit is a gift of God. The new life in the spirit gives us a love of Christ. It gives us a knowledge of the truth. And it gives us the peace of God. And all of these blessings come through faith in Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here today who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you may know the glory of God, that you may believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and through faith in him that you may receive his love, truth, and peace. Let us pray. Lord, this morning we come to you in complete dependence upon your grace, favor, and mercy. Heavenly Father, we cling to your promises as we await to you to attend our prayers. We acknowledge that our only righteousness is in the righteousness of Christ. We bless and thank you for that glorious reality. It is only through your grace that his righteousness became a doorway for us to enter into your presence. Holy Spirit, we bless you for always revealing Jesus, for pointing toward him and exalting him. Reveal Jesus to us, illuminate our hearts and minds that we may love each other the way Jesus loved, that we may love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, that we may love our neighbor as ourselves. Fill us with the peace of Christ in our hearts as we go through the difficulties in this life, and may we extend that peace to those around us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.